I'm Andrea Williams, I'm the Chief Executive of Christian Concern and the Christian Legal Centre. Thank you so much for coming to our offices, the, the hub, uh, the centre of, um, of our work where we, uh, from where the team operates um, here in the UK. Um, it's great that you've come out on this uh, Monday evening, really pleased to have you with us. Why have we dedicated um, this, this evening to this issue? Because we really, I really believe, we really believe um, here at Christian Concern that central to a grand awakening in this nation, uh, central to a gospel awakening, must be an understanding of where we're at in a nation, what it is that's going on in our nation. And the devastating truth that is abortion in our nation, the devastation of death that runs uh, at the heart of our nation, legally at the heart of our nation, breaks God's heart. And the only people that he has to speak of abortion is his people. It's us. And so without us understanding this, this speaking into it, then how can he hear? How can he hear our prayers? Um, I do think it's very serious indeed. I, I'm uh, coming up for 54 years of age. Until I was about 30, I hadn't thought a lot about abortion. Um, I'd had a um, ectopic pregnancy where I had hemorrhaged uh, very badly. Um, this was in uh, about 1989 and pregnant with my first child and lost, lost the child. Um, and that was the first time that I began to think of the loss, the loss of a child. Then I got pregnant with Lily, um, and as soon as she was born, my husband was transferred to the United States. I'd been in practice at the bar for some eight years by that point. But we were transferred across, he was, had a job opening in, in America. So there I went with a six-month-old baby. Oh, well, she was less than that, actually. She was, she was like three months, but I'm sort of thinking around Christmas time she was coming to be six months. I arrived at a big mega church. This is where we went for our first, first day. And on this first day in this mega church, um, so uh, there were about 12,000 people that went through this church. But a woman got up. Uh, on the, on the, um, at the front, on the stage, I want to say it was a stage. And she spoke of her abortion. And I had never heard ever in my life anyone talk about their abortion. And she was standing there in front of thousands of people talking about her abortion. And she talked of the impact that it had on her future marriage, on her relationship with her husband, on her relationship with her children, and how it wasn't until, and when she began to realize these things, she had then sought out help to work that through because it was having that impact as she became, as she became, as she went on in faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so within the church, she was leading confidential Bible studies. And she was then invited people in this church to, if they wanted to come, to have this confidential Bible study on a course that she was running. The same service. A woman got up, she was a tiny lady called Karen Black, and uh, she had a ministry to downtown Atlanta. Now, all my prejudice against America was there. This was sidewalk counselling outside abortion clinics in, in downtown Atlanta. I thought, oh, that's a bit much, isn't it? Going outside abortion clinics and talking to women outside abortion clinics as they're beginning to, as they were going to walk in. But I found myself intrigued by this woman, and so I signed up for her training. My first, my first, it was my first day there. I signed up to go and see what this was all about. I arrive at the training, captivated by what she's doing, find myself down on the sidewalk uh, outside an abortion clinic in downtown Atlanta. I start watching women. Uh, are, they're spoken to by these people in, the, in, in Karen Black's Women for Women, and they turn, they, I see women turn away from the clinic. I then, I then get involved. Um, I see women 
turn away from the clinic. And I became involved, very involved with three women who, rather than proceeding with their abortions, they had their babies, and those children that were born in 1996 in Atlanta, and those mothers are among the most precious relationships, the most precious friendships, the people that I love um, in this world. And Karen Black has saved thousands of women in that way. Now that is something that can be done and it can be done on the ground. And it was my introduction in some ways to this issue. Extraordinary that I would have gone through 10 years at a strong Bible-believing church, never heard a sir, never, I'm not sure I've ever heard of, even now, till now actually, if I've ever heard a, a sermon on abortion, apart from when we do it. Um, but, there, but there I was. Now, that's the kind of thing that we can do in churches on the ground. But that, in and of itself, isn't enough. It's a really, to go in and save the babies on the ground, and I say that we as churches, we need to be the life houses and the lighthouses. So we need to be offering people the hope. So we, I believe that if there are 850 abortions every working day, 600 every day, then the church in this nation ought to be able to save that many babies. That's not, a, that's not a number, it's a very high number, but it's not a number that's beyond what we can do. So I think that we, can, we ought to be able to be thinking about that. But on a bigger level, what we need to be doing um, is thinking about um, changing the culture. And that's where policy and government and laws uh, come in. Right, Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. This idea that in the Lord Jesus Christ everything is anchored all things are created. So from the moment we are conceived, um, we are known. We are in fact, before we are conceived, we are known. So in the Lord Jesus Christ is total truth and a total structuration of truth. And in him is the foundation of all knowledge and truth and what is precious. And Jesus Christ came to be the reconciler. So that truth, if we are truly Christians, determines how we view everything. It's the lens through which we view all things. And it determines the character of how we will view all life, the life that cannot be seen, uh, the life in the womb. Um, and how we view that will then determine um, how we do life, how we, how we value one another, how we cherish what makes babies, procreation. You see, your value of life and its importance will determine how you value sexual expression. It's because we've swept, you see, there is, no there is no line of truth that's out with another. So God's way, the total structuration of truth, which is that the sexual act of between one man and one woman, it's designed to give life, to procreate, not to bring death, but actually it's so valuable, it's so precious, it's meant to be within, committed, lifelong relationship means that within that you create life. It's life-giving and life-enhancing. And when we devalue sexual expression and make it recreational, and there can be then some collateral things that you hadn't bargained for, and then you want to dispense and do away with that, um, you end up with a death culture and you end up also with a hurting culture because men and women get very hurt when they do that. And men and women both suffer when they have created life and if that life is not wanted, it's discarded. Genesis 1, God made and he made us in his image. This is you know, he made everything else. He made everything else. And it was fantastic. 
but then he made us in his image. This is so extraordinarily high. The idea that we would put to death something that he has created in his image that we maybe cannot see, but that is created, that is life in his image, that he already knows, and that we would become God, grieves him. It grieves him. It sabotages him. It sabotages his will for us. It sabotages his will for the life uh, that is created. And let's look at the Father's heart um, as well. God is the Father. And, you know, we know the mother's, that we know a mother's heart, but let's think about the father's heart because the men very often are not spoken of when it comes to abortion. And, and you know, very often also in media circles, we say, we've got to put up the men, we've got to put up the women to speak on this issue. But it's not just a women's issue. It's the father's issue. It's the man's issue. How will he view a, how will he view a woman? How will he view his children? You know, how it's not just, if a woman is pregnant, it's not just her issue. A man was involved, and he is the father. And what does God, how does God um, talk, how does God model fatherhood? Well, the father guarded Moses as the apple of his eye. He guards us like the, as the apple of his eye. And he is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holiness. O Lord, you are father, we are the clay, and you are the potter's. We are the work of your hands. Imagine that. When we are created and know we are known by him in our mother's womb and we are the work of the father's hand and abortion destroys the work of God's hands. It's serious. He sees it and it's very serious indeed. And you see, God knows what we know. The father knows what we know before we need it and we need life, not death. And he wants to cherish or life, uh, like he talks about um, the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you so much more valuable than they? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? That's the, that's the picture of fatherhood. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. The way in which God speaks about the children um, is that um, he does not will that any of them should be lost. This idea, you know, that if we, Jesus said, better for a millstone to be hung round your neck than for your little children to be led astray. Can you imagine what he feels about the way in which we are destroying our children? And the church generally is silent. How can a world know um, of him if we have not addressed this issue? Psalm 139 speaks of God, of God creating us in the mother's womb um, and his eyes seeing our unformed body and then God seeing our every day. This is really really important. And when it comes to life, there is no discrimination on the basis of sex, race, social standing. That's Galatians 3.28. There's no discrimination on the basis of age in terms of how God loves us. There's the protection of the vulnerable and the poor, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 22. The widows and the orphans, Exodus 22. The aliens, Exodus 22. Those that are handicapped, Leviticus 19. The slaves, Exodus 21. The elderly, um, Leviticus 19. And life before birth we see in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Gen Genesis, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Hosea, Matthew, Luke. And there are over 60 references in the Bible to conception. And the natural reading of the Gospel accounts is that Jesus' life, we know of Jesus' life, um, beginning at conception, in a moment of time that was just like ours, that he escaped being killed as a baby, uh, as did Moses, so that he could atone for our death. And what God um, has joined in Genesis, we know, uh, let no man separate.
So God cares. It is a gospel uh, matter. Modern perspective in terms of where, where our laws are on this matter. The Queen's coronation oath on the 2nd of June 1953, so that's 67 years ago. She was presented with the Bible. Here is wisdom, this is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. So this is the 1950s where she's given a Bible and she said that this is the most valuable thing that the world affords. So that's 1950s England presented with a Bible and this is wisdom and this is the royal uh, law. Picture of 1950s, the kind of, you know, a typical picture of the 1950s of, 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 of the family, okay? Very quickly, I think societies can change very fast. 1960s, the contraceptive pill came in, this idea of free love. Free, you know, this is kind of very quickly. What happened when you get the contraception pill is that you, um, what they were saying is women are free. They can do what they like with their bodies. They no longer have the responsibility of being pregnant. So sex becomes recreational, not procreational in terms of its aim. It means that men can have sex without strings. You know, part of, part of the whole thing is the way in which we live is that marriage makes men responsible for the, their wife and their children. And that women generally don't do well on lots of free sex. You know, it's not something that is, it, it just, men might do a bit better, I think. In terms of what they, th or they think they think, you know, in terms of what, you know, but women, you know, it's not good for them, the way that they're wired, apart from they're now told that it is. Mm. And so, and so you've got a, so you've got this whole kind of, because it's now possible for these things to occur, um, this is kind of a, a big sh um, sort of shift in terms of how we are in society. And then it moves to this weekend, you've got next... When sex becomes a free-for-all, free um, people experiment one, you know, with the opposite sex, with the same sex. Imagine when you get let down, when women get, well, when men and women get, in, you know, they get, when you get, have multiple relationships, it's no wonder that you can get inflamed with lust um, for the things that you should not get inflamed with lust for. Whether that's pornography or of the same sex, when it all gets chaotic, which is where you get, because we're not made for that. We're made, sexual expression is for one place. And what you end up with is this weekend, York Pride coming out of York Minster and the children, school children leading the parade. All right. This is the point about divorcing sexual expression what you get, and leading to a death culture, an abortion culture. But also with it, it leads to a loosening, a, a more chaotic sexual and sexual life within a nation, sexual chaos. Because there is no there is no social cultural restraint and no legal restraint. And in fact, the law increasingly permits permits and promotes this. You will be in London this month and you will see on public buildings. Um, Everywhere you will see the pride flag being flown, and you will be in trouble. You may well find yourself in trouble if you're not promoting what that um, celebrates. Um, but you are promoting marriage between a man and a woman. When the Queen came to the throne, abortion was illegal, and only 4.8% of babies were born outside of marriage. Now, Tim. Last talked about legislating morality. We do legislate morality. You know, if abortion is illegal, it means that babies, um, babies aren't dying and babies are born in marriage. That's what it meant, in part. I mean, laws can't make, just make people, but if you create a culture, if what you're believing in, if what the common good is, if what you love is creative, if, you know, if, if that's where, if we are, if we're, a, if we're where the Queen's coronation oath, you know, what is good, the common law, the lively oracles of God, then you create something that's very different from a 46.8% of babies being born outside of marriage. 
All right, that's where we've shifted in 60 years. Um, when the Queen came to the throne, there were 350,000 marriages with a population of 50 million. Today, with 16 million more people in our population, there are 241,000 marriages. So, and in 1952, divorce was rare, about 34,000 couples. Today, about 200,000 divorces every year. That's a massive cultural shift. So, because I want to say that no, you see, abortion can't stand isolated. It has to stand within how we view everything else. Where we're where we deriving our culture from? Are we deriving our culture from being made in the image of God, innate dignity of every human person, sexual expression being something that is for marriage and one lifelong union and the formation of family? When you hold that, when those things are the way that a society is anchored, as opposed to a, I'm seeking my own pleasure. It is the seeking of sin. It's seeking of a culture that is away, which you then enshrine in law. You orient either towards God or you orient away from God. And, and abortion is part of that because abortion is hiding our sin. But be sure your sins will find you out. That's what abortion is. Because abortion is is a reality of what has occurred when, when sex between a man and woman has taken place in a context that they were not ready for or responsible for. And that's why changing the abortion on, changing the culture of abortion, you have to change the culture of what we're made for. We're made for God and we're made for one, one relationship, one marriage relationship. That's what we're made for. It's a whole package. These things don't stand in isolation because it's back to Colossians 1, which is he, Jesus Christ, in him all things hold together. He is the total structuration of truth. Because it, where this all leads in the end is you can't actually say, you, can, you can't speak about this because if you speak about this, you might lose your job or you might be fired. You can't speak for life because you're denying a woman's right. You're a bigot. You're hateful. And so we self-censor, the church censors. So actually what you have in uh, abortion law and laws that hold back sexual restraint um, is you have um, a radical new agenda that's encoded in law. It's 1952. So where was the law before? Sections 58 and 59 of the 1861 Offences Against the Persons Act um, made it a crime for, anywhere, for anyone, this is 1861, using any means whatsoever to procure the miscarriage of a woman. The 1929 Infant Life Preservation Act further extended this prohibition to a child capable of being born alive. So therefore, for 100 years um, or more, there was an explicit and widespread public condemnation of abortion. No one questioned it. And there were severe penalties for those illicitly involved, as well as genuine protection for the unborn and their mothers. We can't imagine a culture like that. We just can't imagine it. But it's not that long ago. Then in 1966, David Steele drew third place in the ballot for private members' bills, always private members' bills are dangerous things. They rarely, they rarely, this, this one did become law, but they rarely become law, apart from it would seem some, when, they want, when some very bad stuff needs to happen. Yes? And um, he introduced his medical termination of pregnancy bill into the House of Commons, and its first reading was on the 15th of June. And there, then there was a very protracted debate around it. Days and nights were spent arguing, rewording, lobbying, and generally manipulating both, in both houses. I have been there, not in 1967, then I was only two, but I have been there. There have been 15 attempts at variations on the abortion bill um, over the last um, 52 years. Um, I've been at quite a few of them. And you cannot believe the kind of thing that gets happened. You get no notice of when a debate's going to take place. It takes place on a Friday when most M when MPs aren't there. 
you know, so they're being called in. It's an extraordinary situation. It takes place overnight. Things get amended overnight. You've got to be really alert. These things are the kind of things that happen in Parliament that you can't, um, that are just, that are sad, but they do happen. But it's there again, what you've got is I can just imagine it. Um, they were, the Labour, the Labour part of the government had to give the bill time. First of all, you had to have a government that would give the bill time, and it did. Um, and then uh, the bill passed its third reading on the Friday the 14th, Friday, after an all-night sitting in a half-empty house. In a half-empty house, the bill went through uh, 167 to 83. We wouldn't get 83. I would doubt that we would get 83 MPs today to vote against even liberalisation. And the bill received royal assent on Friday the 27th of October 1967 and in 1968 um, the Act came into force. One year later, its sponsor David Spill, speaking at a David Spill, speaking at a meeting of supporters, said that the bill was successful because the right men were in the right place at the right time. By contrast, we can say that the right men weren't in the right place at the right time. Yeah. That the church was absent, that our, we were, that our voice was absent, and I think this is in part why I felt so. I've sort of felt upset thinking about this today, because I, whenever I look at this issue, every time the the abortion stats come out every year, I'm prodded in my. I feel something physical about the failure. My per I feel like it's a personal failure um, to be in this pub, into, to be doing what I do and the stats to remain the same. Um, to be part of a church that doesn't address this. I, I don't, I really feel as if it's a, um, a huge stumbling block for the church, but also for the gospel really going out. And the state of this nation surely means that we, I used to talk about the church needs to reform, um, it needs to repent, reform and revive. Um, we definitely need to repent, and we definitely need to reform, um, but it's like we need something bigger than it, it, the grip and the speed at which things are currently um, going is alarming and I, even for me I mean even for me and I've, I've been around a long time um, it, it, doing this work um, so abortion is illegal so it's interesting because abortion still is technically illegal unless the mother's life is at risk or the risk of physical or mental problems are greater if the mother continues with the pregnancy. This is ground C, that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman greater than if the pregnancy is, con is um, terminated. So the Abortion Act 1967, section one, subsection C. Two doctors, two medical doctors have to sign off on this reason. And about 98% of abortions in our nation are signed off on this reason. Doctors sign off to say that the, med the they say that the, the medical health of the mother, the risk to it is greater if she continues with the pregnancy. This is obviously not true. So what you have is a medical profession, um, again propagandized. I mean, they don't know how to think any differently. Who's responsible for the thinking? Who's responsible for putting the truth out there? The church. So what you have is medics, student doctors, just learning that this is what you do. Medical forms being signed off that the mental health, the mental, and the, the reason is the mental, re, the mental risk to the mother is greater if she continues with this pregnancy because she's not ready for it. Not because it's inconvenient, not because she has to finish her studies, not because it's unwanted, not because it was after a drunken night. And then there are all these other reasons with it too. If at schools we are 
teaching, giving our children sex education, then why have we got so many abortions? Why are we teaching children safe sex? Why, why do we still have all of this collateral? Because you see, the thing is, we do have to teach our, you know, we, we, we've got to look after our children. But the reality is that when this is happening too, we are not, this is not a solution. Abortion is not the mental health solution that the doctors say it is. Studies show that women, many women, have terrible mental health issues after this. And there's, when do we ever hear of a woman speaking about her abortion? And again, what does the church need to provide? Is the safe place, the forgiving space, the redeeming space, the hope. They would need to say to the woman, you are forgiven. The Lord knows your child and he knows you. And you're rescued at the foot of the cross. And we, in a sense, there's a sense in which society is complicit because if we all say it's just a few, just a few cells, not really life, then the woman might not think any different. The child, the, ch the teenager might not think any different. And that's why there needs to be a revolution in our thinking, a social revolution on this issue. The Universal Declaration of Rights at European level says everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of person, that's Article 3. And in Article 6, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Doctor's Hippocratic Oath. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked nor suggest such counsel, nor in like manner will I give a woman a pessary to produce abortion. This, once upon a time, was what doctors si signed. I don't think they have to sign it anymore. But until relatively recently. And the Declaration of Geneva, which doctors had to sign, I will maintain the utmost respect um, for human life from the time of conception, even under threat. This was in 1948, so this is after, um, this is around the kind of, the beginning of the European Convention on Human Rights. And I will not use my medical knowledge contrary to the laws of humanity. So we've been through the two world wars. We didn't want to see those sorts of atrocities again. And the Declaration of Geneva at a European level was saying, we are going to protect life from conception. It shifts in 1994 to say, I will maintain the utmost respect of human life from the beginning. When is the beginning? When is a person a person? Little, just three words. Just three words. So when is the beginning? The zygote, sperm and an egg, the development into the fetus, embryo, coming through to birth, to a child, to age 20. So you've got your DNA. When are you alive? When are you alive? Conception, yeah. When are you whole? Everything is known. Everything is known. From that moment, from that, from from the, from the moment you are conceived, it's all known. Your DNA, your the colour of your hair, all of those things is known. When are you dependent? When do you stop being dependent? <laughs> it's quite interesting. I've got a mother-in-law who's a midwife. Um, you know, this little girl here, she's dependent, isn't she? He's dependent, you know? And I've got a very, I had a very amazing, capable mother-in-law, um, who's 83 now, um, and she's got dementia. She's very dependent. Um, very fragile, needs to be nursed and loved and looked after. Um, that's the human condition, isn't it? And how we treat the most vulnerable in our midst is what makes, determines a civilised society. Are we a civilised society? As an aside there on the, el el on the elderly, elder abuse, rampant. If you don't, the generation that kills its children will kill, um, will, kill will be killed by its children. If you have 
family breakdown, which is what sexual chaos and abortion brings, then you can't look after your mother-in-law, or you might not look after your mother-in-law. Because the household which God talks about is a household. It's not, it's not individualistic. We live in households. I'm meant to love my mother-in-law, and I'm meant to look after my mother-in-law. And I'll go to my father in a couple of weekends too, who's also increasingly fragile. That's what we're meant to do. When, you know, so that's the, that is the, 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 that's life, because we are also eternal. We're eter it's eternal. Life is eternal. This is on this, on this earth. But that creation um, is an eternal creation, an eternal creation. A heavenly, a, a, a creation that is destined for heaven. That's what, our, that's what human, our humanity is. God gives us life, but we are destined for heaven. We're destined for eternity. We're playing with eternity. We're playing with his purposes. He gives life and he takes life. It's his to give and his to take. So 95% of abortions occur between seven weeks. Here's the images of babies at seven weeks and 20 weeks. And of course, we have this is a 20 week old baby. Um, the abortion limit used to be 28 weeks. It's abor um, abortion up to birth for disability. Still, up to birth. And you know, the, the, the reality is when we were trying to reduce the upper time week limit from 24 weeks in 2008, there is just a reality that babies are surviving at 23 weeks and 22 weeks. You've got the extraordinary thing whereby doctors can be in a hospital saving, doing all they can to save a baby, and in another room allowing, leaving the baby left to die. You, I've been around the country and sometimes people have come, to, one nurse came to me and she said, when I saw the little hand, I saw a hand after an abortion, I saw a hand in the drain. Yeah. <coughs> extraordinary images of babies waking in the womb. Again, this idea um, during that 2008, when the 2008, which was, which was our best chance to reduce the upper time limits, um, they wouldn't accept that the, 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 the child in the womb had set, there, there was fetal sentience. When we had pictures of the child walking in the womb, we had <coughs> medical evidence showing children moving away from a, a needle that might be going into the womb. You could actually see these on the screen and still, there were, it was denial. It's straight denial of the truth. You churn truth on its head. That's what we do when we walk in darkness and not in the light. And that's why we have, the light has to keep on exposing um, the darkness. We legislate morality. The slave, um, is not a human person in the eyes of the law, the Virginia Supreme Court, 1858. Um, an Indian is not a person within the meaning of the Constitution, the American Law Review, 1881. The statutory word person did not, in these circumstances, include women. British voting rights case in 1909. The Reichstag itself refused to recognise Jews as persons in the legal sense, German Supreme Court decision of 1936. The unborn child is not, a per is not protected. Anne Faraday, who leads BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, says, for me the question is not when does human life begin, because I think we can accept, so the woman that heads up um, the largest pregnancy abortion provision services in this country says, also has charitable status. She says this, because I think we can accept that the embryo is a human life of sorts. For me, the question is, when does human life really begin to matter? When it comes down the birth canal? We, one of the things that we've done to push back at Christian concern is we're trying to enshrine in law at European level the personhood of the unborn child. And Paul Diamond 
with Roger Kishka was, and Gregor Puknik was at the European Court of Justice um, just a few weeks ago after a two million petition uh, was signed at European level to, say, to try and gain legal right to say that the, um, that the embryo is one of us. We can argue, I mean, in law, it's still arguable um, that the unborn child is, is worthy of protection. But it's just we don't view, culture doesn't view, culture, policy, the way we implement the law, the way the medics, the medics are wholesale abandoning the law. The point is the hard law isn't fit for, the hard law isn't applied because the culture says something different. The folklore, the policy law, the... The, the way that we live, the way that we teach, the way that we are, the way that we are godless points to something that is different. Statistics. Abortion is illegal unless there was meant to be very few abortions, just a few hundred abortions. We were told it was for to stop backstreet abortions. There weren't really that many backstreet abortions. But 1968, um, 20, there wasn't even... Um, um, maternal mortality by this point. When you look at the evidence, when you look at the evidence, no, no time to go into that. But government statistics, 25,000 abortions, 1968. By the year 2000, it stayed pretty much the same, around 200,000 abortions every year in England, Scotland and Wales. Nine million abortions since the passing of the Act in 1967. What is nine million? What is 9 million? It's 15% of the entire UK population. What is 9 million? It's more than the combined populations of Birmingham, Bradford, Bristol, Cambridge, Cardiff, Chester, Derby, Edinburgh, Leeds, Leicester, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle on Tyne, Northampton, Nottingham, Oxford and Sheffield. It's <coughs> catastrophic. It's catastrophic. And, and until God's people address this, the reality is that that sexual revolution, the freedom revolution, the, sexual, the love revolution, the equal love revolution, um, has been extraordinarily bloody. And the law has permitted it. It's been murderous and bloody. It's as bad as any genocide. And we've sanitised it. We go out for cups of tea. Um, it's done with people in medical uniforms, in nice buildings. And tomorrow, um, 800 more people will be killed. Imagine if a class of 20 children were shot tomorrow. Imagine if a school of 800 was bombed tomorrow. Imagine what the nation would be like. Abortion worldwide, 43 million abortions every year, 57 million deaths from all other causes. So abortion is the leading worldwide killer, higher than cancer, higher than um, AIDS, higher than poverty, you know, malnutrition. It's the women, you see, the thing is, women putting their children to, put to death um, is the leading cause of death in the world. And fathers, the father heart of God, imagine what the father thinks. And there is something, um, it's, just like a woman is not meant to give herself away, well, men aren't meant to give themselves away either. Um, so we're not meant to kill our children. It's just not how we're made. So when, we, we're, when we're taught that it's not a big deal, we're being sold a death lie. We're being sold a lie from the enemy. And you know, when we're sold that, we create all this stuff that makes it really hard for people to access the kingdom. 
because when you're hurting that much, when you've done that much, your, your, your conscience gets hard, you, you, you're hurting, you're hurting, you're hurting. And the thing is, God has a way back from all of that. That's the message of the cross. That's what's so extraordinary. We have the message. We have the hope. We have the beauty. We have the wherewithal. We have the, we have the, we have the true love. We have the Christ that died on the cross, that poured out his blood for the blood that is shed, that can make it as right as possible, this side of eternity, when there will be no more tears, when there will be restoration. And all of it leads to more things. So that if you don't value the, if you don't, if you don't value human life, then you'll be able to, and and re, and technology presses on, and you then have the ability to make a human life in a laboratory, IVF, first test tube baby, nineteen seventy-eight. You move to a place, then whereby in nineteen ninety, for the first time, because you now can, you. You have a bill where you are allowed to create embryos with the express purpose of experimenting upon those embryos and then destroying them. So suddenly you now get to a place where you can create life, because you now can, and then destroy life. Then you go to 2004, where we have a license to clone a human embryo at the Christian Legal Centre. We sought to resist that license and we failed. What is cloning is man making man in the image of man. You go from 1967 taking a life, 1978 making a life, 2004 faking a life, to, nine, to 2008 where for the first time we are um, legalised animal-human hybrid embryos. That's the mixing of cows' um, eggs with human sperm. That's all legal to experiment upon it. Also creating banks of embryos with the express purpose of selecting one that is fit to save. This, this technology doesn't work. A sick older sibling, what happens to the embryos that don't match? They are destroyed. They're either frozen or they are destroyed. We don't have, the government conveniently doesn't keep those statistics of how many embryos have been destroyed. We also now have the possibility of three parent embryos because we're manipulating life. You see, if you don't respect the context and the place of life, if you become God in the destroying of life, then it opens up this as well in terms of what we do, uh, how we view life. So then babies become, when they're inconvenient, we destroy them. When they are convenient, uh, because the, all things are now possible, we have babies. So same-sex couples can access babies via, via surrogacy, via um, uh, donor sperm, by all various ways in which you can now have babies. This now becomes possible. So the whole drive for same-sex couples to have children, because they now can. Increasingly, the um, surrogacy, women having babies by um, sorry, having, baby, who, having babies by surrogacy. Who has the babies by surrogacy? Women. Um, who are these women? The women that have the babies. Volunteers? Not always often paid, yeah? In this country, still expenses. So are they, the, are they, the, the, are they wealthy women? No. No. Uh, generally, they will be women that are selling their womb um, in order to have a baby. So they are, end up being the, in our country, in, in the UK, what it is, we, it's true that it, it technically they're not um, uh, paid, but it's expenses are given to them. That's the way in which it's, they, we get round it. But the point about here, this is, it's, it's the vulnerable women. It's the women that need the money. You're not going to have someone else's, someone else's baby if you're wealthy or in a secure circumstance, are you? What is that? It's human trafficking. There's a whole market of um, gay men going to places in India for women to have their children. So you get to what it becomes, because, you've, because of, there is no regard for the life, you now, you're able to manipulate life. And it all started with not regarding life. This, and it is a form of human trafficking. It's exploitative, and it's exploitative of women. Some of our cases, 
Natalie Evans, an early one. This is, as I say, how long we've been around. That's why I get incredibly sad. I get incredibly, I can't look at it when I think about the history. 2003. I was there in 2003 trying to save a frozen human embryo because the mother had become a Christian. And she now believed that her embryo, the embryos that were still frozen, were the siblings to her daughter. Um, we failed. We, we did two cases like this around that time. And we failed in both of them because the father didn't give consent. All right. So you then have this. Um, but you also have this strange thing where gr the grandmothers are having the frozen embryos, for, for instance. You, or you've got um, children being born five years or seven years, sometimes after the older than after their siblings. So you create all of these sorts of situations because why we're not oriented towards God's way for creation. Also at this time, um, this abortion statistics came out and it showed that there were 26 late term abortions, um, third trimester abortions for cleft palate. Joanna Jepson herself had a, um, a jaw deformation and so she, um, we, with her, we brought a challenge to, to, to have, know the names of the doctors who'd, carry, who'd carried out late-term abortions on babies with cleft palate. That information was suppressed. We failed in our judicial review. It did get a lot of coverage. Then the government, from that time onwards, suppressed the statistics on late-term abortions and the reasons for the late-term abortions. So we came back and we had another legal challenge later on, which we won, to get back the reasons, the reasons why late-term abortions um, were, going, were going ahead. Also at this time, Sue Axon is a woman <coughs> who had had um, three abortions, uh, three or four abortions, when she was young, um, a teenager, and then into her 20s. She had teenage children. She became a Christian. She was horrified to discover um, that, that girls could go to the GP and have an abortion. And she saw these guidelines, she came across them when her teenagers were at school. And she brought a challenge to say that parents should uh, have the right to know from the GP whether if their, um, if their children were um, going to have an abortion. Again, we failed in that challenge. Isn't it extraordinary? At a school, I've got four children aged between 16 and 22, so only one left at school. But I have to sign off if she wants to leave the premises, I have to sign off on a trip if she has to have paracetamol, um, but she can go to a GP and have an abortion without my knowledge. Um, and you know, we are all affected by abortion in some ways. One in three to four women have, will have had an abortion. There may be women in this room that have had an abortion. You know, somewhere in, somewhere amongst, you know, that we will know of this. And one thing that I was very affected by growing up was of a secret ab abortion um, that was um, close to me. And then watching um, that person, uh, nobody knowing about this. And then some years later, watching that person um, find life difficult, went into a difficult marriage, came, uh, got married young, then, then um, had, had to go through counselling, then ultimately came back, came to the law when she began to speak secretly to people that she trusted about what had happened to her. She doesn't want her parents to know. Still. You know, if it's really nothing, if it's really nothing, then why the secrecy? Doctors threatened with... Uh, um, sanctioned by their professional bodies unless they help women towards abortions. Reported not by the women that she'd helped to keep the babies, but reported by her fellow colleagues. Showing pictures of aborted babies outside clinics. Um, one of our cases, this was Abort 67 at the time. I've been told, Andrea, stay away from Abort 67. They show pictures of aborted babies outside clinics. I, did, I neither stayed away nor went towards them. I 
But I got a phone call one day, they'd been arrested and they were in Brighton Police Station. So I went down to help them out, to get out of Brighton Police Station. They'd been strip searched for showing these pictures outside the abortion clinic. If we can't look at this, then why is it legal? Exactly. Abortion protests itself. I decided I was going to go down and watch Abort 67 in action um, down in um, Brighton. And you know, they were so respectful and they were standing away from the clinic entrance. I stood just watching, after their arrest, I was watching them. And I saw an Asian girl go into the clinic, by, with two, taken in with two older men. I thought, I wonder what's happening there. I watched two, Brighton's got a lot of universities. I watched a young boy and girl, young, not young, but 20, walked in hand in hand. And I thought, students, I thought those women are going to go into those doors and come back out. Now talk about Abort 67 being around the corner where the police had told them to go. I got radicalised, even more radicalised than I was, you know. I'd been told to stay away. I thought, I'm going to go in front of that, that, that clinic door. I'm going to stand in front of it and say to the women that are walking in, let's have a cup of tea. Let's, 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 let's just go across, let's, let's, there must, there's another way around this. You know, a cup of tea would do it. Seriously? It's going to be okay. We can help you through this. Uh, we can look after you and we will look after you just as Karen Black did. Just as Karen Black inspired me, just as I did with those three women, didn't even know what I was doing. Okay, when I was 30 with my child, I used to take Lily in her little car seat. Didn't know what I was doing. Saving lives was what I was doing, but I didn't know that's what I was doing. Karen Black was, taught me what to do. And that's all it might take. That's all it might take. And if the churches in this country do not have the wherewithal to offer a cup of tea to a woman in a crisis and stand with her and stand for life and say we'll see you through, we will look, if we will look after you and the baby, if you really can't look after the baby, we'll look after the baby. We will become your family. That's what it requires. And it requires steps of faith like that to just do it. And if we did it across this nation on the local level, as well as exposing the horror of what abortion is at a public level and a policy level, this could stop. This could stop. It's like we're so overwhelmed by it, we don't think we can stop it, but we can stop this. It's a social justice issue. It's the greatest social global social justice issue. That's not to belittle any, all of the others. Because if you get me going on those, I'll be really passionate about those too, yes? But, and the church is the answer to all of them. And we can't solve all of them, but we can solve the ones that are in front of us. And this is one that's in front of us. You know, if I was in Mexico, I'd want to be solving corruption. You know, and probably a lot else, but I'm just saying, you know, wherever you are, wherever God places you, you have the issues that are in front of you to deal with. And this is a massive social injustice and blind spot for the church. Babies are aborted because they're, um, because they're female. This is American, but it was going on at the same time. You know, they were basically having buying, buying fetal tissue, buying liver. And you saw the woman selling these baby parts um, over a glass of wine and a Caesar salad. And you know what? The guy that exposed this, um, th what do they say? Um, you went, you recorded without permission. That's, a, that's always the way that things are. When we, expose the, when we expose the lies in the darkness, you recorded without permission. Did you get clearance? Did you get permission to expose our darkness? I don't want my voice heard. The Crown Prosecution Service um, says it's not in the public interest to prosecute, came against Ashton Hubert for £47,000 for bringing a private prosecution.
against doctors that were prepared to abort babies because they were female. Grand push now to demedicalise abortion and 10 minute rule bill uh, two years ago. Um, beware of the 10 minute rule bill, pushing abortion up to birth should be a woman's right, a right to access the medical procedure of abortion. It's my body, it's my rights. When we try to do an informed consent, simply saying to women that every woman who's pregnant should have the right to, should have be offered counselling. This was in 2000, 2009, 2010. You'd have thought we were trying to take away women's rights entirely, the backlash that came, came against us. They don't want women to know. Um, again, they keep on coming. Do you see the push, the relentless push? Another bill aimed to <coughs> treat access to abortion. That was just uh, last year. This time last year, exactly last year. And then last year as well. When women do this, when we, women sh pop champagne corks um, to kill their babies, we're in a dark place. 17,000 evangelicals, I guess it's an old study in 2010, it will be worse now, it will be worse now. Abortion can never be justified. Agree a lot, 20%. Agree a little, 17%. Unsure, 18%. Disagree a little, 28%. Disagree a lot, 17%. That means that you've got, I didn't count it up, 28. You've got well over half, 68% or so not sure about where they stand on abortion. That was in 2010. I'm not sure I've, that's the latest study I, I have. Um, we, we have to go on the offence, we have to make abortion unthinkable, um, we have to continue to say that abortion is illegal, we have to resist further erosion, we have to have pragmatically specific goals, lowering up time limits, protecting the disabled, uh, Down syndrome, they are essentially screened out, don't screen us out, that campaign. Um, we've got to change public opinion. That's the work of um, Centre for Bioethical Reform um, and many others. We've got to change the doctors. are also wanted to treat it as a medical procedure too. We can't change public policy until we change public opinion. Change seldom occurs unless the cost of maintaining the status quo becomes unbearable. Um, in systematic injustices, victim group, it, the, it, first of all, they're marginalised, they're dehumanised. Jews were called parasites. Um, and, and indeed, in Parliament, in, when Roger gave evidence, when they were looking at extending the law to Northern Ireland, um, the unborn child was described by one of the women on the committee as parasitic on a woman's body. Parasitic on a woman's body. Black people were not considered to be human. So the unborn child is not considered to be human. Like a boil, said Dr. Martin Luther King, that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. What I've realized in some of the battles that we face not just on this issue, but on others, that battles, that boils, that it's messy. You know, and, it, and, you, and at that point, you sometimes want to just retreat back to safety. Um, but we have to press on doing the right thing. You know, to leave the boil, in the end, kill, will kill us. You've got to, you've got to purge it. And I think that abortion is one of those um, keys. Um, it's one of the keys to unlocking an awakening. In the, I think it's as critical as that, a gospel awakening. I do not know how God can hear the prayers of a church that permits... God is gracious, I, he's much more patient than I am, but that permits death in its midst.
I hope that as I've spoken, um, no one here is in any doubt about um, how I feel about the woman in the unplanned pregnancy or even the woman, the woman that's had the abortion. We need to help them to speak and help them uh, to be whole, help them to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 